0: are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together and share his love. We're going to be in Mark 9 starting in verse 14. When they came to the
1: other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with him. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, How long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long have you been like this? From childhood, he answered. It is often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer.
0: Thanks, Brian. Well, Brian is one of the many men here who have been a blessing in my life chief among them though here in this space would be my dad my dad is a nursing home administrator and I'm going to share a picture with you from 1991 a little blurry but it was a picture of a picture because we didn't really have digital pictures back then last time the twins won the world series 1991 and my dad would walk us to school and then he would walk the extra block to work and I remember throughout these years growing up that he would ask me from time to time, Bjorn, don't you think someday you might want to be a nursing home administrator? (laughs) So here we are 30 years later, I'm not a nursing home administrator, but he still is. And yet way more important than that to me, he's just my dad. And so we'll move on here, but I just want to pause and honor my father on this Father's Day. It is a privilege to be in worship together every Sunday. So all those years ago, who would have thought that would be the case? Today in our series in the Gospel of Mark, we have the story of a father. It's a father who seeks out Jesus, and that has got to be the most important thing that any father could ever do, to seek out Jesus With his children. And yet, there's lessons for all of us in this passage this morning. This is the fourth and final story of an exorcism in the Gospel of Mark. Now, exorcism, you might recognize from movies, it is the word used to describe the casting out of an evil spirit. So, previously in Mark, chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, and now here we are in this final example in chapter 9. But this story has a different focus than the other three before it. The focus in the first examples is on Jesus' authority, his power over evil. So it's about establishing that fact. Throughout Mark, we're asking and answering the question, who is Jesus? And Mark is saying, he is the one who's bound the strong man, Satan, and who is now plundering his house. And that means he's got the power to kick out all of these demons who are plaguing his children. And yet that's not the focus of this fourth example. The focus here is on the disciples and what they're learning. That's what's drawn out and emphasized. And I'm going to show you the two major lessons that are here for us in this text. As we make our way through, I've outlined our passage under a few headings. And if you find it helpful and you're a notes kind of person, you can jot these down as we go. As we study the word together. So the first heading that we'll use is the disciples' problem. And that's verses 14 to 18. The disciples' problem. This passage, if you glance earlier in the chapter, falls right on the heels of a pinnacle moment in the Gospels called the transfiguration. And that is when Jesus goes up this mountain with his inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And while they're up there, if you remember this story, there's an amazing scene where Jesus meets with Moses and Elijah and the voice of God the Father speaks from heaven. It's literally and figuratively a mountaintop experience. And now Jesus and those three disciples have come back down the mountain and they come upon this scene that Brian just read for us. There's a large crowd and a whole hubbub of commotion that they come upon. And at the center of it, are the other nine disciples and the religious leaders arguing back and forth. You have to imagine just this mass of people. It's chaotic, contentious, noisy. And when the crowds see Jesus has arrived, they rush over like a superhero has come to finally save the day. So Jesus arrives on the scene and he says in verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? And that's when a man steps out of the crowd and says, Teacher, I brought you my son who's possessed by a spirit. And then he describes his son's condition. It's robbed him of speech. It throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and his whole body goes stiff as a board. So let's talk about what's described in this condition. It sounds like it could be Epilepsy. It sounds like an epileptic seizure. And yet Mark and the other gospel writers who report this scene are absolutely clear that this condition was the result of an evil spirit. Now if we're not careful students of the Bible, we could be tempted to say that this is a case where it is epilepsy and it has been misidentified by people who didn't know any better as demonic possession. A kind of God of the gaps argument that says these poor people in the ancient world, they didn't have the knowledge to describe what was really happening and so they just ascribed it to the boogeyman or some evil spirit. But that's not the case at all. When we read the Gospels, we see very clear descriptions of physical illnesses in many cases. We see other instances of demonic oppression And sometimes, but not often, where the two of these overlap, the biblical writers knew the difference between the two. And in this case, whether it was epilepsy or not, it was caused by an evil spirit. No doubt about it. What we want to be careful about ourselves is not to fall into one of two errors where we see demonic activity behind every sneeze or mishap that we ever come across, Or, what's more common in our culture, we don't see it anywhere and deny that the demonic even exists. So eyes wide open for you and I. The father in this story describes the condition to Jesus and says, I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they couldn't. And that brings us to the second heading, Jesus' reaction. Verses 19 to 21. Jesus looks on this whole mess and says, you unbelieving generation. Now who's he talking about when he says that? Is he talking about the father? Or the disciples? Or the religious leaders? Or I'm going to suggest to you, how about D, all of the above? Including you and me. Jesus is talking about the wider human condition that we belong to an unbelieving generation from Adam till now. And we see Jesus react with both frustration and compassion. So he uses these idiomatic figures of speech in verse 19. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? And some of us have heard our mothers say that perhaps at home. (laughs) He's frustrated. He's just been up the mountain with God and Moses and Elijah. And all the three disciples up there could come up with was, Jesus, you remember what they said? Let's build three shelters. They're in the very presence of God, and all they can come up with is a Boy Scout project. And he gets back down the mountain And he finds the other nine, and they're arguing over ministry failures. At the root of it all is our struggle to believe, to really believe and trust in Jesus. So Jesus throws up his hands, as it were, and he says, You unbelieving generation. And yet we don't just see frustration, Jesus also responds with compassion. And he says this stunningly beautiful line. Bring the boy to me. I look back in my notes. Two years ago, we studied this passage under a different sermon series, and we lingered on the importance of that line. Some of you remember. So we won't belabor it again, but we do recognize that herein lies the ultimate solution to our problem. There might be someone in your life that you're worried about, a son a daughter, a grandchild, a student. And I want to remind you that Jesus' invitation still stands. Bring the boy to me. Bring your son or daughter to me. Bring them to worship if you can. Bring them to the Lord in prayer from wherever you are and watch what he can do. Now the narrative continues. They bring the boy and when the spirit sees Jesus, it says he throws the boy to the ground in convulsions. So I mean it's just a... If you've ever been around someone who has an epileptic seizure, I mean it's a scary experience. And this is outdoors so this boy is convulsing on the ground. He's foaming at the mouth. And we see Jesus' compassion again. He says to the father... How long has he been like this? And we hear the compassion as he asks that because Jesus is not gathering data that he needs in order to complete this upcoming miracle. He's not asking what he couldn't supernaturally know otherwise. No, this is the heartache from one man to another, from the Son of God to one of the lost sheep of Israel that Griffin read to us about. How long has he been like this? That's Jesus' reaction. Now how about the boy's father? The next section of the story is the father's faith. Verses 22 to 24. It starts with the father's response. He says, he's been like this since childhood. Verse 22, he says, it's often thrown him into the fire to burn him or into water to drown him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. It's the desperate plea of a father. It reminded me of watching that movie with Denzel Washington, John Q, when he says, my son is dying and I'm broke. And this father here is saying, my son is dying and I'm out of options, Jesus. So if you can do anything, And this is one of those scenes where if we could be there, and I don't know if this is possible. They might have this all digitally stored up in heaven one day and we can go back and watch the real scene. But if we could hear the tone in his voice, if we could see the look on his face when he says, if you can, if you can. Can't you imagine just the twinkle in his eye as he says this? If you can, verse 23, everything is possible for one who believes. It's one of the key moments, that line right there. Everything is possible for one who believes. Now I find my mind, I don't know how you're wired, but when I read this, my mind is racing ahead to qualify that statement. To quickly talk about everything that is not meant by everything. But I realized this week, you know, God, He really doesn't need our defending, does He? And we lose the potency, I think, of what He has said when we just rush to rationalize it, qualify it, and put it in a box. So let it first be said, as we study this passage, that there is an undeniable connection between our faith and the power of God. If you flip back to Mark 6, Jesus is in Nazareth. You remember this scene? He's in his hometown. And in the story there, it concludes by saying, He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark chapter 6. And so I ask you this morning, you know, if that was Nazareth, how about Elk River today? How about you? If you or I are lacking in faith, we are effectively setting a limit on what God can do. Now does that mean everything goes our way? No, we just look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus who was full of faith, perfect faith, and yet we see Jesus crying out, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. Even in anguish, Jesus did not set limits on what God could or couldn't do. And so, how about you? How is God testing and strengthening and refining your faith in these days? Are you willing to take God at his word? that everything is possible for the one who believes? Or is your horizon limited perhaps by merely human possibilities? Or maybe you realize I'm somewhere in between. That's this father in the story. He hears Jesus' word and he cries out in verse 24 these iconic lines, I do believe Help me overcome my unbelief. Have you felt that way before? Have you uttered these exact words to God? God, I do believe. I do. I'm here. I cannot shake the conviction that you are here. And yet, at the same time, God, I am so badly besieged by doubt. It's an honest prayer. And notably in the story, Jesus does not shame, reprimand, or chide the man for his honesty. In some ways, the father is further along than any of these disciples. Because at least the father is aware of his struggle. The disciples just sat around and squabbled. What we see in this father is an earnest desire to grow. And that's the point. Here's the first of two major takeaways from this passage. Faith is our growing trust in God to do what only He can do. Faith is our growing trust in God to do what only He can do. So look at some of those key words. Faith is growing, first of all. It's not stagnant. It's getting stronger. And it's growing stronger in trust. Trust, a key relationship word. I'm learning to lean on him more and more in my life. And thirdly, faith is not about what I can do. It's not about me flexing my muscles. This is about what God can do. So the more faith I have, the more at ease I feel because I'm letting God do the heavy lifting. There was a man in Chicago in the 19th century named Dwight L. Moody. And he would become one of the most famous preachers in American history, and yet was a very unlikely fit. And I love finding these stories and telling them to you because they challenge any of us who would ever count ourselves out from God using us to do mighty things. So Moody's mom, when he was a kid, made him go to church. Later, when he got a job, a full-time job at the age of 17, it was his boss who made him go to church. It was a different time back then. It was a company policy. And here's what the youth minister in his teens said about young Dwight. I can truly say that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. Ouch. He keeps writing in his journal. This is the Sunday school teacher. I think that the church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. Guess what? That same Sunday school teacher is how Dwight L. Moody heard that God loves him in Christ. And he decided to follow Jesus as a teenager. Now within a few years, Moody left a very lucrative business that he had started. A shoe and boot business. And he gave it up to become a chaplain in a little organization called the YMCA. And it was through the YMCA that D.L. Moody brought the message of Jesus to the masses of children in urban Chicago in the late 19th century. And if we had more time, I'd tell you more of his story. But what I want to share with you about Moody are the three kinds of faith that he described. He said, first of all, there's a struggling faith like someone in deep water, desperately swimming. Secondly, there's a clinging faith, like someone hanging to the side of a boat. And thirdly, he said there's a resting faith, like someone safely in the boat and able to reach out and help others get in. Now at different points of our life, I bet you can identify with each of those three different kinds of faith. But Jesus' invitation and his sure and steady pull on your life is that he would bring you into a resting faith. Moody said, Faith makes all things possible. Love makes all things easy. It's a resting faith. Well, let's carry on. The Father says these words, and then my next heading is, The Boy's Freedom. The boy's freedom, verses 25 to 27. The crowd is quickly gathering and Jesus then quickly takes action. And he says, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter again. And that's all that Jesus does. Just says the word. And it stands in such sharp contrast to what the magicians and sorcerers would do in the ancient world. You could read the reports. It was all kinds of hocus pocus and tricks and props that were involved. And not Jesus. He just says the word and all creation bows down. It says the spirit shrieked, convulsed the boy violently and came out of him. And the boy himself looked to be dead. At least that's the murmur that goes through the crowd that the boy is dead. But verse 27, Jesus goes to the boy, takes him by the hand, lifts him to his feet, and he stood up. Literally it says in the Greek, he raised him. And it's a resurrection word. This is the business of God. Raising up his sons and daughters, delivering us from evil like we pray, and giving us new life in Christ. It's interesting though, unlike the previous three stories of exorcism, the spotlight is not on the Father or the crowds when this happens. Those stories have already been told. The focus in this one is the lesson of discipleship. And so that's our last heading in the text The disciples' lesson, verses 28 and 29. It says that after this scene outdoors, Jesus heads in and the disciples follow him in to ask a follow up question. And what they want to know is this Jesus, why couldn't we drive it out? And they're making a valid point because Jesus, after all, had given them this very authority. Twice in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, he does. In chapter 6, he's sending them out two by two. And we read that they are casting out many demons. So, what was the rub this time? Jesus answers the question in verse 29. He says, This kind can come out only by prayer. I find his answer fascinating. On several levels. For one, it indicates that there were ranks, I guess, of demons, that they could be differentiated by category. And this one was apparently a very resistant, very powerful being. And that's where the disciples got into trouble. They took a knife to a gunfight and they didn't come spiritually prepared. And here's what they forgot. This is the second, the other major takeaway from the passage. That prayer is our first response and most powerful weapon of faith. Prayer is our first response and most powerful weapon of faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, he says, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And he says in in Ephesians, so put on the full armor of God. You remember this? And he, he lists the armor. He says, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the readiness of the gospel. He says, put on the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And then what does he say? And in all occasions, pray in the Spirit. And they forgot. They went in on their own power. And so Jesus is reteaching them the principles of his kingdom. You and I, we can learn so much from their blundering, can't we? The blundering of the disciples because this sure looks familiar to me. In the story, they're befallen by failure. I'm befallen by failure. They get into needless arguments. They're undisciplined in prayer. Like me, they're more confident in their own ability than to actually walk with God. And that's where they get tripped up. How gracious is it that God would come to us in these moments down into the valley as it were here with us where our faith is small and our prayers are lacking and He lifts us up. Here's the big idea of the whole passage. We're going to connect now. Faith and prayer in these lessons for the disciples. Disciples are growing in faith and running to prayer to see the power of God. My brothers and sisters, when you are growing in faith and running to prayer, then you will see the power of God. Let's go to him now, shall we? Let's bow our heads. Our Heavenly Father, how great and awesome you are. And I pray that we would press in more and more to know, feel, and experience your Father's love for us. Lord, you know our blundering so well. You know our lack of faith and our forgetfulness of the things you've taught us. And yet you come to us so gently, so mercifully, Lord. We thank you for your gracious correction. We thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, today as we have taken in the truth and power of your word, we ask that you would would help us grow in faith. And with a new spirit in us, Lord, that we would run to you in prayer this week in ways that we missed this past week. And we ask this for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening to the Y Church podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at theychurch.org.